Revelation 6, I'm reading as always out of the English Standard Version. You'll look that up on your phone or if you have a copy. Chapter 5 is about the war between the flesh and the spirit. Now he switches to life within the body of Christ and how we function as a church, how we treat our fellow believers. And that's not much of a leap to go from one subject to the other, because the church, in many ways, is like the laboratory in which we learn how to follow the spirit instead of the flesh. So here, here's my analogy. I heard somebody say once, just remember every surgeon has a first surgery, pray you're not his first. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny because I didn't have any surgery scheduled. Uh, so I used to tell that story or that joke. I never told it to anybody that she was having surgery, but still. And then somebody with medical training said, you know, that's not actually the truth. I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, before a surgeon ever does a surgeon, is ever the lead surgeon on surgery, he's, he has worked in on, as a team uh, on countless surgeries before. So it's not like they just throw a guy straight out of medical school in there and say, who's the best? He's got his skills on, he's done all the things that are part of the procedure before he ever takes the lead. And that made the joke not nearly as funny. <laughs> but you think about it, that's what the church should be. The church should be a place where we are learning step by step how to follow the Spirit. And so we may not have experienced certain situations, but we're able to watch other believers walk through that and walk through that with them. So that when it happens to us, whether it's a loss of a loved one, whether it's a, a relational breakdown, whether it's financial hardship or, or health issues we have, we've seen it happen. We've walked through it with others. We've borne their burdens alongside them. And so we're ready, in a sense. Now you can never be told. And hard times and pain are always going to, in some way, take us by surprise. But at least you will have walked through it with others and you've seen it. And this can be survived. And you'll be able to see, this is how I say yes to the Spirit and no to the flesh. So, here's how it's done according to Galatians 6. Verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, it has been said that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. Not, not a good report, not something you want to be said, and yet I understand why it's said. Because what we hear about are the scandals, we hear about the stones, we hear about people who've been driven out of the church, who have, who have walked away from the church because they've been burned or judged or, or treated cruelly too many times. This verse tells us the way it should be done. If anyone is caught, caught, that word caught, literally carries the sense of surprise, trapped, you know, as if you wake up one day and realize, oh my goodness, how did I get here? And I think many of us could tell stories of that in our own lives. I'm not asking for anybody to give a testimony here, but many of you could. You could say, there was a time when I thought I was a good person, and then I ended up in, in the midst of some sin or some failure that I never thought possible, that I never thought I would do something like that. And I don't even know how I got there. I had to backtrack and look, and okay, here's all the mistakes I made, all the ways that I took God for granted, all the, all the ways that I, I led the devil and get a foothold, and then boom, I wake up and I'm caught in some trespass. And that's what he's talking about, caught in a transgression. 
Uh, we see it happen in the church, in church life, and not just pastor scandals that make the newspapers. Or, oh, well, that's a dated reference. They make the internet. So, you know, you think about the promiscuous teenager. You think about the deacon whose business gets busted for ethical issues. You think about the person who's the inveterate gossip who's just talking about people left and right. You think about the, the hot-tempered person that everybody wants to make shelves around uh, because you don't want to get on their bats. You think about the person who's addicted but doesn't tell you. So they're not, they're not letting the church uh, help them deal with their addiction. They're keeping it secret. Uh, you think about the trouble, the person who just stirs up division within the church. And, and on and on and on it goes. What happens when you find out that one of your fellow church members is caught in one of these transgressions? I mean, virtually any. This is any habitual sin that is harming him, harming you, harming uh, that person, the sinner, and those around him, and potentially the body of Christ. Paul's advice or Paul's recommendation is first of all, you who are spiritual, who's he talking to? He's not using that term sarcastically, as if to say, okay, you're so spiritual. Remember, he's just gotten through with an entire chapter about how we don't follow the law anymore. We walk by the Spirit. We have to say yes to the Spirit and not the flesh. So what he's saying is, if you are a person who says you walk by the Spirit, not the flesh, then it's up to you to take some initiative in this case. Because here's what we usually do. When we catch someone, a fellow Christian, in a transgression, we do one of two things. The nice ones among us ignore it. We, have, we pretend we didn't see anything. And we think, well, if I ignore it, they'll probably get it under control on their own. I don't want to embarrass them. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to cause any trouble. What we really mean is, I don't want the discomfort that comes from confronting having a difficult conversation. Because I'm a good person, but I'm a nice person, first of all. I don't like having people angry with me. I don't feel like somebody's upset with me or offended at me. So I'm just going to ignore this. I, I saw that man, the way he was talking to his wife, and I know that's not right. But I, I, it's not my business. You know, I, I saw I saw the, the shady dealings that guy's doing. I know he's a deacon in the church. He needs to be confronted, and someone else will do that. Or on the other side, if we don't ignore it, we publicly shame, we call it out. Whether that's uh, gossiping behind their back, or whether that's uh, publicly uh, calling their name in an attempt to shame them, and that. The motive of that is we feel important. We feel like we're this, this heroic whistleblower who has brought someone down when what we're really doing is making ourselves feel better about ourselves by bringing someone else below us. So what does Paul say? He recommends or he prescribed a three-step process when we catch someone in a sit. And, and again, please understand, it doesn't mean someone stubs their toe and says it's dirty work. Not a one-time sin. This is talking about a habitual sin, of the same sin. He says, number one, restore them. Those who are spiritual should restore them. And that's actually the same term that you would use for a doctor setting a broken bone. So think about that for a moment. I don't know that we have any physicians in here, maybe some folks with some medical training, but you know if you were trying to set someone's broken bone, there would be a there would be a process, right? First, you have to convince the patient that it's necessary. I don't think anybody's going to go up to someone who's just been in a car wreck and grab their leg and start tugging on it. You know, that person's life will kill you. 
So you have to convince him, I'm a doctor, I know what I'm doing, your bone needs to be set. In the same way, when you confront this person, to restore them, you have to help them see what we're doing here is necessary. You have to just help them to see repentance has to happen. You have to help them to be a part of the process. So restore them. And also, he says, you know, a part of setting a bone out of it is know what you're doing. And, and so you have to think carefully about the best way to restore that person. And that depends. Is there someone that person needs to apologize to? Does that person need to apologize to a whole group of folks? You know, there's not a one-size-fits-all situation. I didn't get permission to tell this story, so I'll tell you what friend of mine this is about. But I had a friend who, when she was in high school, one of her friends came up to her and said, I just want you, I just want to apologize to you because I've been thinking some really dirty things about you recently. And my friend said later, I wish she hadn't told me. I had no idea that she was thinking these awful things about you. You know, there's not a one-size-fits-all restoration process. You have to use discernment. How do you help this person be restored in a way that is loving, that is right, that is, that is mindful of everyone's feelings? So restore them is the first step. The second is restore them in a spirit of gentleness. This is why the whole blast them in front of everyone doesn't work. Now, in the case of a leader, sometimes it comes to that. Leader does have to be publicly shamed sometimes in order to preserve the witness of the church. But again, even there, I hope there's been a process leading up to that. At all times, we need to have a spirit of gentleness. Remember, gentleness is not popular. No one ascribes to be more gentle than I I have never heard anybody, and I've, I've been a pastor a long time, and a lot of folks come to me and say, I wish I was more, but they never say gentle. Because it seems like such a weak thing. We talked about it last week when we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is, is not weakness at all. It is strength under control. It is the ability to know, I could hurt you, but I choose not to. So when you restore a sinner in the spirit of gentleness, again, you have their feelings in mind throughout. You are trying to get them back to the place where they can walk and function within the body of Christ without any shame or embarrassment. Sometimes it takes time, but that's your goal. Your goal is not just to confront sin. Your goal is to restore, and that takes gentleness. The same way that uh, you know, if you're, you're trying to get a thorn out of your child's hand, you don't attack it with a chainsaw, right? You don't go at it with an axe. You have to be gentle. And then number three, he says, keep watch on yourself. Now that could mean. Watch out so you don't stumble into the same sin. There's some That's what I, the way I always read it. And then I heard someone say, I don't remember the preacher, but I think he's right. Maybe what Paul's saying is, when he said, unless you, you too be tempted, is when you're restoring these people, be careful that you don't become arrogant, that you don't become judgmental and self-righteous. Look at me, I'm this person who restores lost sinners. Boy, am I righteous or what? Watch out for yourself. You need humility. We're going to talk more about humility in just a moment. Don't get proud in the process. See, this is that's what separates gently restoring people who are caught in transgression from, on the other hand, the person who is constantly on the lookout for people who stumble. You see the difference? 
On the one hand, you're talking about someone who's, because they love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, they're involved in their lives, they happen to come across a situation where they see a brother or sister stumbling and they realize they can't walk away, they need to get involved. But on the other hand, the prideful Christian is one who is excited to find sin in others, who's looking for it, who, who, just, who just is always on the lookout, got their radar out for, for stumbling so they can call it out. And that's not where you want to be. You shouldn't take the lightness that should bring sorrow to you. You shouldn't be excited and tell others about it. In fact, you should want to keep it to yourself. Alright, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if we're walking by the Spirit, within the body of Christ, we're going to look for opportunities to help others. We're not looking for opportunities to confront you sin. Those things come up as part of our walk. <laughs> we are a lookout for people who are struggling so we can bear their burdens alongside them. Uh, I think about this. I've only owned a pickup a couple of times in my life. I usually don't like driving pickup trucks. I know that's not very taxing of me. The problem is, if you own a pickup truck, somebody's always asking you to help them move. <laughs> I mean, if they not move their apartment, move their house, it's, hey, you know, I just bought this couch and just take you know, just take 30 minutes. Yeah. You know what that means? I, you know, I just bought my brother a little bit if you want to pick it up for me, I'll, I'll pay, you, pay your gas bill. Yeah, okay. That's a whole Saturday, right? I know that works. But, but when you own a pickup truck, you end up bearing others' burdens. That's their feed you're carrying. That's their uh, sod or, uh, or mulch you're carrying. That's their patch, their piano, their roll away bed. You're bearing their burdens. You're, you you get the skin busted off both knuckles, but all every all ten knuckles on both hands. You herniate your back, lose the whole day off, and you don't get anything except maybe he buys your pizza because you poured his burdens. You don't get any of it. You, he doesn't give you a share of the possessions, right? And and yet my attitude of well, that's why I don't have to pick up is the wrong attitude. You should want opportunities. <laughs> You should want opportunities to help others. And most of us avoid that. Most of us avoid it because we think we have enough problems with our This is what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, by the way, about taking responsibility for the people around you. As you listen to me on Sunday, you probably thought, well, he's talking about people outside the church, and yes, I am. But I'm also talking about people within the church. You know, when we talk about transforming relationships, it can be with people in the church who are already saved, but who are struggling, and need somebody to come alongside and help them through a difficult time, or disciple them further in their faith, or strengthen them from their struggle. That's what we're called to do. And the church is the place where you learn how to do that. You don't love your fellow church members, how are you going to love the lost? There's, a, there's another side of this, though. When it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, yes, that's calling on us to help others, but it's also calling on us to be humble enough to admit we need help. There is no shame. In fact, there's something very holy about a believer who goes to his Christian friends and says, I need you to, to strengthen me, I need you to help me, I need you to get me through this time. And there are some of us, some of us who never do there's some of us who complain about every little thing. And that's the minority. Most of us 
keep our struggles to ourselves, and it shouldn't be that way. I want, you to, I want to read you something. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 6. This is Paul writing, of course, to the church in Corinth. He says, So even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So you hear what he said. We came into Macedonia, it's the place where Corinth was. We came there and we were beaten. We had nothing left. We were ready to quit. And then God rescued us. How did he rescue Paul of his friends? Not through some miracle, not even through uh, the, the presence of God or the power of the word. He rescued Paul from that by the arrival of a good friend. Big times. The message there is when one person is there to help carry burdens, it can be incredibly powerful. And some of you know what it's like. Some of you know both sides of it. Some of you know what it's like to suffer all by yourself and just think, where are all my friends? I thought I had friends and they're not here. Others of you know what it's like to think, I'm all by myself and then that friend shows up and then the whole room below and the burden just gets lifted off. I don't know why it's that way. God just designed us this way that when we have people walking through that suffering with us, somehow the burden is lighter. And Paul needed that, so we other further than that, we're going to talk about this on Sunday morning in a couple of weeks on Palm Sunday, but when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he brings the three, the inner three of the disciples, James and John and Peter, with him. What does he say to them? He says, keep watch and pray with him. He wants them to sit up. Even though they're tired, he knows this. He wants them awake. He wants them praying alongside him. Why? Because even the Son of God is human needed people to be with him as dark as power. They didn't work. I'm sure they were great at their whole lives. When he says, and so fulfill the law of Christ, it's an interesting phrase for Paul to use since the whole book of Galatians is about how we don't need the law anymore. <clears throat> He's talking about the law of Moses. Remember, Jesus said, the whole law is wrapped up in two things, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what he's talking about. He says, so fulfill the law of Christ. When you bear the burden of somebody else, you're fulfilling the law. The whole verse three. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. By the way, don't ever send that verse to someone as that perfect. In the right direction. So for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So that, that verse 3 that I made a joke about, a spirit-led life produces a lot of things. And we looked at the fruit of the spirit last week, all night. And it didn't list humility, but then it's not an exhaustive list, because a spirit-led life also does produce humility. If you are walking with the spirit, you won't think you're something when you're not. You won't think more highly of yourself than you should. But, he says, the cure, the cure to pride and self-righteousness is spirit-led self-examination. Let each one test his own work. What does that mean? It means we don't compare ourselves to others. That's what we want to do. You know why we want to do that? Because we can always find somebody who's worse than At least from our own perspective. I, I don't know, maybe maybe it's not this way. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not this way for ladies, but men have a way of looking in a mirror in such a way that 
we can convince ourselves we still got it. You know? And I think women are the opposite. Women look in the mirror and they see every flaw. And I'm, you know, one of many reasons men have it easier. But yeah, us guys, we can stand at a certain angle and suck in our gut. You know, more than the bald spot or the gray hair or whatever. Yeah, I can pass for 17. No, you can't. <laughs> and whenever we get down on ourselves, we always look at, you know, old so-and-so, Eugene over there, I went to high school with him. Boy, he looks terrible. <laughs> but I don't. And we do that in a spiritual sense, too. So comparing ourselves to others is absolutely fruitless. Instead, we should measure ourselves against the Word of God. So, obviously, obviously, I would want you and every Christian, especially in this church, to be reading the Word of God daily. And whether that whether that means a few verses or a chapter or enough to get through the whole Bible in a year, it just depends on what kind of a reader you are. I hope you heard me say it. The person who reads five verses a day is not less spiritual than the person who reads four chapters a day. It just depends on, are you retaining what you read? Some people can, can retain huge sections. Other people are, are better just focusing on small portions. And it's not a matter of intelligence. It's just the way you're wired. But my point is, I want you reading the Word of God every day, but I want you to measure yourself against the Word of God. I want you every day to read it and say, if I applied that to my life, how would my life be different? Yeah. When you've done that, you've meditated upon Scripture. The Word of God, uh, Psalm 1, that's what Psalm 1 is all about. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's Word day and night. It's like a tree planted by a stream of water. No matter what the weather's like, it's going to be fruitful. What does it mean to meditate on the Word of God? It doesn't mean Eastern meditation where you sit and chant some, uh, some, some formula. No, it's you take the Word of God and you read it and you ponder it long enough to where you get to where you say, I think I understand this passage. Now, what would my life look like if I actually lived that truth out? When you do that, when you do that every day, you're hearing God's Word speak to your heart and it has a way of humbling us because we never get to the point where we say, all right, from Genesis to Revelation, I've got it down. If you do, you're not really reading it. Test yourself against the Word of God. How often do you do this? Ideally, it should be done every day. But I'll take whatever I'll get from, from the members of my flock. The cure to pride is spirit and self-examination. Now let me look at verse 5, which we already read. For each will have to bear his own load. So when you who are sharp are probably saying, wait a second, in verse 2 he said, bear one another's burdens. Now in verse 5 he says everybody has to bear his own load. Is he just contradicting himself? Is, is Paul uh, slipping into some kind of dimension? He's probably said, no. <laughs> and we know this because in Greek, verse 5 and verse 2 uses two different words. The word he uses in verse 2 when he says, bear one of those burdens, is a word that means a heavy burden, something that if you carry it too far for yourself, it would kill you. So yeah, it is good to have people help you bear that burden. That's a piano, right? That's a, that's a couch. With the, with the bed inside. Um, but when he talks in verse 5 about bearing his own load, that is that is an individual load. That is what you carry. That's your day's burden. It's like a soldier with his pack. Only you can carry your own load. Everybody will be responsible for the, for the uh, assignment you've been given by the Lord. This is Paul's way of saying, don't compare yourself to others because that's not going to work on the day of judgment. God's going to judge you based on how you carry your load not how she carried her. So, 
verse 6. Let the one, and this is the verse I want you to remember and memorize. Let the one who has taught the word share all good, good things with the one who teaches. Oh, you know, I was joking when I said that's the one that you memorize. But it is. It is about making sure that you take care of those that God has called to be spiritual. Now, there's an interesting pattern in the New Testament. On one hand, Paul tells us over and over and over again, I don't take money for preaching. I, I do my work without taking the salary because I don't want to be a burden on the church. On the other hand, he often, often says, if somebody is teaching you the word of God, you need to make sure he's able to make a living from teaching the word of God because that's an important teaching the word of God is. So what does that tell us? Okay, uh, I'll just tell you how I interpret it. I interpret it to mean there are some people who have a calling to teach the word of God as a profession. Okay? I think we all agree on that. Some of those people are called to areas that are pioneer areas. Small churches, new churches, places where the gospel has never been. That was Paul. If he had gone into those areas and said, I've got good news for you, but first, you'll need to pass the hat because i gotta, I got to eat tonight, it would have hurt the spreading of the gospel to say the least. There are many, many, many men and women of God today doing what we used to call bi-location, now the word is co-locational ministry. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get to heaven, and those are the ones that Jesus is celebrating, not the big mega church pastor that we all celebrate here, because the, the, the work they've done at incredible sacrifice to themselves uh, is fantastic. We have no idea the impact they're making or the sacrifice they make. We don't celebrate this. We look at them and say, well, if they were any good, they can pass from the church where they can earn a good salary, and that is absolutely not the case. On the other hand, we're commanded to people who preach the gospel should make a living from the gospel. I take that to mean if a church is able, they should pay their pastor or their staff enough to live on. Doesn't mean they should be rich, doesn't mean they should be poor, it means enough to live on. Amen. I think uh, I, that's, that's a lot of her done. I, I, had, I had a part-time position when I was in seminary. My wife earned a, a heaping $15,000 a year working for an attorney, and so we were able to make it work. Uh, but other than that, I've always been able to earn my living from preaching the gospel, and that's a blessing, and I thank God for it. All right. Now, what that tells us is two things. It tells us God's word, God's people should not take the teaching of his word lightly. If, if it's worth paying the salary of the person who teaches you, then it must be important to God. But the unspoken implication is the pastor shouldn't take God's word like you. If you're getting paid to do it, if God has commanded his people to sacrifice so that you can earn your living from it, then don't you dare get up there unprepared or with a heart that's not right or, or having not spent sufficient time in the word that you know that you're teaching faithfully and effectively. Yeah. Paul calls it the foolishness of preaching in the first Corinthians. That God uses the foolishness of preaching. I think that's his way of saying there's always going to be a sense, even within the church, that you have preaching. It's no big deal. Anybody can do it. Uh, I, I'll tell you this story. When I was a new preacher, I was my first church, and there was a woman I had gone to visit, and I said, We had a nice little visit. Maybe a cookie or something. I was getting ready to go. I said, Well, I guess I better get back to work. And she said, 
work. Oh, study. You should call that work. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Can't wait to see you. Maybe she was just playing my I don't know. apologize, but the point is, Paul knew there would be people within the church and certainly outside of the church who would scoff at the idea of somebody getting up and talking about the word God once or twice a week as having any impact on Whereas Paul says, this is important stuff. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is part of the essential life of the church, the whole part of the reason why the church exists. And again, as I've said recently, one reason why I know podcasts and TV and other media will never really replace the teaching of the Word of God within the local churches. No matter how good that guy is who podcasts, and I podcast him about half dozen myself, he doesn't know what you're struggling with. He hasn't been at your bedside in the hospital. That's right. He, he, can't, he can't know the, the temptations you're facing and the questions you have and the wrestlings you wrestle with. So there's, there's no replacement for the teaching of God's Word by the person called to be your pastor. Amen. That's, that's all I'm going to say. Now, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this is essentially the end of the instructional part of Galatians. Next week we're going to look at the conclusion. There's a lot to talk about there. But as usual, Paul's conclusion is, is a lot, is very relational. It's a lot of uh, talking about personal items with his uh, congregation. Here is the end of his instruction, and he's summarizing the whole argument he's been making in the last third of the book, which is, in all of us, there's a war between our flesh and the Spirit of God, and every day we have to decide whose side we're on. Am I going to be on the side of the flesh or the side of the Spirit? Whose uniform am I wearing in this army, in this war? Uh, whose side am I going to join? Whose side am I going to fight for? Am I going to fight for the flesh or fight for the Spirit? Because you can't be neutral. There's no Switzerland in the spiritual fight of your soul. You have to choose a side. In the same way, he says, our future is determined by what we sow. Those of you who know farming, you know that's the case. Uh, if, you're not, if you're a farmer, you're not going to have a good autumn unless you work hard in the spring. So what you sow in the spring is what you reap in the fall. If you don't work hard in the spring, you're not having anything to eat. Verse 9 is a wonderful line. And this is one of those verses that seriously you need to have memorized. And this is one of those verses you seriously should send to people you know who are struggling. Let us not grow where you're doing for a due season of glory if we do not give up. It doesn't just take wisdom and foresight to build a God of life. It also takes perseverance. Again, just like farming. If you are growing crops, you can't give up when a month has passed and there's no fruit. It doesn't happen in fast. You don't dig up the plants, you don't plow them under you have to wait. In the same way, this is an admission. Sometimes serving God doesn't seem to be working out. I think many people in this room can testify. You teach that class, you 
work with that group, or you, you're trying to witness to that neighbor, and you don't see any impact whatsoever. You think you're wasting your time. God says, don't give up. That doesn't mean there's not, there can come times and times where you say, I don't think I'm, infect, I'm affected in this ministry anymore, so I'm going to move on to something different. And that takes wisdom and discernment. But when you know you're doing what God's called you to do, and there come those moments of discouragement, those moments when you say, look in the mirror and say, I'm not doing anybody with it. And yes, that happens to me. And it's happened to anybody who's ever served God. Elijah, for goodness sakes, a man who had one of the Spirit of God in his pinky that I had my whole body, laid down under a broom tree and said, God, kill me, I'm no good. So if it happened to him, it can happen to you. Paul says, don't give up. If you give up too soon, if you plow your plants under, you're going to miss the harvest. Don't give up. Because you will reap the harvest will be. Verse 10 shows that Paul, when he says all this, has been talking about serving others, not just doing random good deeds. Because it says we should, as we have opportunity, do good to everyone, especially those who are the household of faith. Don't get discouraged. It is not that hard to keep trying to do good deeds, right? To try, if you're, if you're determined not to say dirty words, you can do it. It just takes a little self-control. It's not hard to keep that up. But serving others can get discouraged, especially when they don't appreciate it, or when you don't see any impact. I read a stat recently that said nearly 40% of pastors in the last two years had felt a desire to quit. I'm glad and thankful to God to say I'm in the 60%. I've never enjoyed ministry more than I do now, but that should tell you something. Teachers, by the bubble, are leaving the profession of education. Medical workers are struggling. Anybody who serves other people gets a wall sometimes. So, don't give up. Think about the image of the farm. Back in the ancient world, tending those crops, especially most of the people who tended crops in the ancient world, they didn't even own their own land. So they had to get a good crop in or they would starve. Maybe he's got some lazy neighbors who aren't tending any crops at all. They're just running around spending their money, squandering it left and right while he and his family are struggling just to survive. But he knows now it's going to be done. If you quit now, you miss the harvest. If you stay in the plow, if you keep tending those crops, you keep pulling those weeds, you keep watering, those little plants, there will be a purpose. You cannot fail. So let that encourage you. God's word does not fail, and you will not fail if you stick by him. Let me lead us in the words prayer to me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, I lift up anybody here who is struggling right now. Uh, I can only imagine, I know that the people in this room want to serve you, so I can only imagine the, the barriers they're facing. So for all those who are discouraged, give them encouragement tonight. Help them to see that they will read, that they will see a harvest someday soon. But I pray that we can encourage one another and bear one another's burdens as you give us opportunity. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.